The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. We started this series two weeks ago, and we had a brief interruption for uh, Love Life Ministry, which was obviously a worthy interruption. Um, But I want us to start with just a brief review uh, by way of a short quiz I have here of what we studied last time. I can see the smiling faces. You guys are super excited for that. Good. You're the, you're the people who liked quizzes in school, I can see. Okay, so easy one. First off, what caused England to break with the Pope of Rome? Henry VIII. Anybody want to add? T? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm going to assume that that's Irvron's deep knowledge of the history of the United Kingdom, which I'm not aware of, and I'm going to move on. Um, okay, so what in particular calls Henry to want to break? His many wives, his, his search for a male heir, right? He, he has this desire to have a male heir, and that causes him to go down this path, and eventually leads to him declaring the nation of England... Uh, free from underneath uh, the power of the Pope. Okay, and this starts the English Reformation. Let's see, a little more difficult. In what city did John Knox come into conflict with other English exiles on the continent of Europe? I'll be really impressed if you know this. I'm looking at Pastor Holtz back there. (laughs) Yes, yes, excellent, Frankfurt, that's right. Frankfurt. Yes. Yes, good. Who was that? Very impressive. Very impressive. Okay. All right. Uh, what was the result of the exiles returning to England and Scotland after Mary died? What happened? Probably multiple right answers to this question. What happened in Scotland? Right, yeah, they had seen the Continental Reformed Churches, and they had seen what it would look like to have a more thoroughly Reformed Church in uh, what would become the United Kingdom, and they they brought that back in. And uh, that spurned various movements in Scotland. It it began the Scottish Reformation, right, with John Knox returning and uh, and getting the the Parliament behind him there. Uh, But also in England, it spurred another movement, which we talked about Separatism, okay. Um, uh, Puritanism, right? Elizabethan Puritanism. Yes, right. Okay. All right, let's see here. Here's another, here's another tricky one. What did the Committee of Six Johns do? Remember we were talking about how all theologians name... Start with John, and this is a good example of it. The Committee of Six Johns uh, were the ones who compiled the first book of discipline. Yes, that's right. The first book of discipline uh, for the Church of Scotland. And let's see, part of the answer you already have here. What was the Scottish Church's doctrinal standards before the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, were adopted? Yeah, that was, that was part of it. The first and the second book of discipline were their kind of books of order, 
And then theologically, uh, the Scots Confession was their, was their confessional standards, and it became the Westminster Standards after they were adopted in Scotland. Okay, and then who were the Huguenots? Yes, you guys, you guys know that. They're French Protestants, right? They're French Reformed uh, men and women. And we talked about how, because of the persecution in France, they were forced to flee, and they would become a major factor in the history of American Presbyterianism. We noted that you can see French names in American Presbyterianism, like John Lafayette Gerardot from Charleston and, and others who clearly uh, are not Scottish. You can tell from the name. Okay. All right, so uh, good. That's a, that's a little bit of review. I just want to keep us thinking about what we've heard uh, already as we continue to move forward. Today, uh, we're turning our attention from Europe to uh, the colonies, and we're going to talk about the colonial Presbyterian story. Now, uh, we're going to skip over a few things that Tim Hopper is going to cover next week. He's particularly going to focus upon um, uh, Scottish immigration to the colonies and, and things such as this, the Highland Scots in North Carolina, the Scotch-Irish and places like Western Pennsylvania and Western North Carolina, the back country, all, all of this. He's going to get into that a little bit more, and those are very important topics. I'm seeking today to give a bit of an overview of the colonial period. So it's, it's going to be a bit of a higher level uh, look at colonial Presbyterianism in America and to accomplish that end, I'm going to divide it roughly into, into four sections here, or three sections, really. We're going to look first at the origins of colonial Presbyterianism, and then we're going to see uh, the development of colonial Presbyterianism, and then we're last going to look at some of the controversies uh, that were present in colonial Presbyterian history. So in the, in the time period we're seeking to cover here is going to be roughly up until 1789. And you can tell we're covering a lot, of, a lot of ground here, right? 1607 to 1789. Uh, and once again, just an overview uh, for this morning. So uh, let's begin to think just a bit about how Presbyterians got to the colonies. Um, you note here, the first Presbytery uh, that's established in America, you don't note here, but I'm going to tell you about it, uh, is in 1706. But here we have a church, Fairfield Presbyterian Church, 1680, okay? Which raises the question, uh, were there Presbyterian churches before there was an established presbytery? And the answer to that question is yes. You had many churches, many congregations scattered around the colonies, in particular places like Long Island in New York and, and places like Delaware, Pennsylvania, and even some in southern New England uh, that were Presbyterian in conviction but did not have any organized presbytery to belong to. Now, there were some places where there were, for instance, Dutch and German churches that were actually in fellowship with continental Reformed bodies. That would be the case later in the city of New Bern, I mentioned that last week, that the church there, the German Reformed Church, for a time was actually in fellowship with the German Reformed Synod that was established in the Palatinate in Germany. But with Presbyterians, this, this didn't really happen. There weren't uh, many churches, at least, that would have claimed to have been members of denominations or of bodies back in Europe. Some have now, but it's, it's a little bit doubtful that that was actually the case. But here we have example, were actually a slave state, uh, but they did not join the Confederacy. There's Puritans up there, but they're congregated, if you will. Um, 
Yeah, later that's going to be the case, even in correspondence between Jonathan Edwards and Scotland, he'll express that he has no issue with Presbyterian church government, even though he is obviously a very famous Puritan Congregationalist of New England. Okay, so continuing to move forward, we have this wonderful picture of Francis McAmey. I think it's a little bit better of a picture than we had of Queen Mary uh, the last time. This one doesn't look quite so unflattering, although I'm not sure I would go with the style he's sporting there today. But, uh, Francis McAmey, we spoke about uh, last time a little bit. Does anybody remember where Francis McAmey comes from? Ireland. Right. Yes, exactly. He comes from Ireland. So uh, Francis McAmey is uh, going to be involved in planting churches on the eastern shore of Maryland. You guys know where the eastern shore of Maryland is, most of you? For those of you who don't, it's kind of this, this part of Maryland that hangs down here. It's connected to, to Delaware and so forth. And, uh, and, it, and it brushes up against Virginia at the very top. So some of McAmey's work is going to be in Virginia as well. But Maccamy uh, was ordained in Ireland. He was actually ordained in the presbytery of, I believe you say it is Lagan. But you guys have heard me read First Chronicles. I'm not always the best at names. So I'll leave that one up to you. So he's ordained, and he's licensed and ordained in Ireland. About the time he's licensed and ordained in Ireland, a man who I don't think we know anything about, his name was Colonel Stevens, wrote to that presbytery the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, and asked for a minister to come over and begin work on the eastern shore of Maryland, and they sent Francis McAmey. So McAmey comes over actually on a mission, really, from his presbytery of the Irish Presbyterian Church. So there, you know, some people will say that the Irish Church is really the mother church of the PCUSA, and, well, all of us by extension. I, I think there's some real truth to that, actually. You can see that in places like this. Um, so McAmey comes, he begins to establish these congregations. He actually pastors four different congregations on the East Carolina. I have a picture here of Oboth Church. Um, I don't think that's the original building, but, <laughs> but that is uh, the, the original location. And there's a monument to Francis McAmey in uh, Virginia, I believe, actually, uh, on the other side of the Chesapeake from the eastern shore. And so you can go and you can see this statue of McAmey. I think it's like out in a field in the middle of nowhere. Probably take a special trip. Probably only I would go to see it. But uh, anyway, it's there if you find yourself in the area. Um, <clears throat> so he establishes these churches and he begins to work with other men uh, who desire uh, to establish a presbytery. We mentioned, uh, well, we'll get to that in a bit. We'll have to jump back. I do want to note before we talk about the first presbytery uh, that was formed in these colonies, that there was another presbytery in existence at this time in the New World. Now, does anybody have any idea where that would have been? I, I would be really, really impressed if you knew this. It was in present-day Panama. And it's called the Presbytery of Caledonia. Uh, and that presbytery was established by three ministers from the Church of Scotland who had gone out in the 1680s uh, to establish that work there in Central America. Uh, interestingly, one of the men involved in that work is a man by the name of Archibald Stobo. Has anybody ever heard of Archibald Stobo? 
Okay. He's an interesting character. He's going to become, we can maybe say, the father of Southern Presbyterianism in the United States. But we'll, we'll look at him in just a little bit. Okay. So just note, Presbyterian Philadelphia, first in the colonies. It's not the first in the New World. So that's an that's a important thing, I think, for us to pay attention to. So 1706 rolls around. And Maccabee, along with others, I mentioned Jedediah Andrews, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, George McNish, uh, John Wilson, I could go on, I'm not going to continue to do that, uh, but several ministers joined together, and they uh, formed themselves into this first presbytery, which we call the Presbytery of Philadelphia. We actually have uh, the minute book with the first meeting recorded here. I tried to read some of it. You can read some of it. Um, but I think it's, anyway, it's interesting to see there. Uh, Presbyterians keep records. Uh, <laughs> maybe we're a little too tied to keeping records, but uh, it's kind of nice whenever you can look back and see the first Presbyterian meetings recorded here for us. You like their font? Yeah, I think that's papyrus. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so these men join themselves together as a presbytery. This presbytery is pretty large at this point, so it covers churches eastern shore of Maryland. It covers churches in Philadelphia. There's churches on Long Island at this point, uh, and so on and so forth, Delaware. The churches are fairly spread out, um, but nonetheless, they have established themselves into a presbytery. And once this begins to happen, things uh, move fairly quickly. So by 1717... Uh, they establish uh, a synod. And that synod com- is composed of three presbyteries. Those three presbyteries, of course, came out originally of the Presbytery of Philadelphia. So you have the Presbytery of New York. Sometimes it's called, sometimes it's called Long Island. You have the Presbytery of Newcastle, uh, which primarily you can think of eastern Pennsylvania and Delaware in that presbytery. And then you have the Presbytery of Philadelphia. And so they join together and they create very original, the Synod of Philadelphia. They like Philadelphia, so they called a lot of stuff Philadelphia. But so anyway, so they established this Synod. You can see that things move really quickly. I, I would suspect, I don't know this, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but I will anyway. I, I would suspect that what's happening here in this rapid growth is, is partially due to immigration to the New World, but it's probably partially due to what we mentioned earlier. There were churches that were convictionally Presbyterian, but, but they didn't really have a good presbytery they could join, right? So it's difficult to be a Presbyterian without a presbytery. So once the presbytery formed, people begin to attach themselves to it, and, and things begin to move fairly quickly at that point. Okay, so before we go any further, well, first I'll ask if there are any questions. Yes? Can you state succinctly what a presbytery is? <laughs> okay, so a presbytery is a, a regional, we could think about, you know, if you think about a presbytery meeting, I think that would be the easiest way to do it. Many of you are familiar with that, right? So this is a regional gathering of the church. And whenever you have a regional gathering of the church, what you have is a big meeting where you have the elders from the various congregations come together into a presbytery, Right? And so that's the idea that's going on here. So when we're talking about a presbytery, we're talking about sessions, the ministers, some of the ruling elders from these local congregations coming together to organize themselves into a larger 
court of appeal or body of governance over a regional area of the churches? Does that suffice? Okay. It's a good question, really. Good question. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so I, the language I used of court of appeal is very important there, right? Uh, so, you know, highly recommend if you're interested in reading about this, you go check out a, a book by a man, an Irish Presbyterian, actually, by the name of Thomas Witherow. It's a wonderful little book called The Apostolic Church, which is it, and he lays all this out. But very quickly, congregationalists believe that church discipline is done in the local congregation. They would appeal to passages like Matthew 18 or uh, 1 Corinthians 5, various passages that speak or seem to speak of taking place. Uh, but what they do don't have is they don't have any authoritative body outside of the local congregation. Now, in New England, that definition is really stretched. They, they become, they are not like the kind of congregationalists we have today. So the associations in New England would have been a bit more powerful than your typical, say, Southern Baptist Association of Churches, say the North Carolina Baptist Association. Uh, would have no power whatsoever over an individual congregation. And, and in a sense, that's the same thing for these congregationalists, but perhaps not to the same degree of local church autonomy that you would have. But when it comes to church discipline, Presbyterians, like, you know, if a member of our church had an issue with our session, they could appeal it to a, to a larger body, to the regional church. That's not the case in congregationalism. Is that, does that help? Okay. All right, questions are over. I've got to keep moving. <laughs> All right, so before we move on to talk about the Adopting Act, which is really a very important subject for us to talk about today, I do want to speak very briefly about Presbyterianism in the South, and I'm going to have to make this very brief. We mentioned Archibald Stobo earlier. So Archibald Stobo was one of the founders of that Presbytery that we talked about down in Panama. Well, he shortly after he arrived and helped start this Presbyterian, get it going. His wife, who was with him from Scotland, uh, began to suffer from, from physical ailments due to living in Central America. And so she pressed him, and I, he agreed, to, to leave uh, the area we now call Panama and go back to Scotland. Has anybody heard this story before, by the way? Okay, it's an interesting story. So uh, they board a ship, and they start heading back toward uh, Scotland. One of the ports that they are going to stop at along the way is the harbor of Charleston. So they stop in Charleston, and once they get to Charleston, some of the members of a very important congregation there, known as the Circular Church, which the Circular Church, we're not going to go very far into this, but it's a fascinating congregation there in Charleston. It's still there today. It's liberal today, unfortunately. Uh, the Circular Church was made of three different groups of people. It was made up of English, Congregationalists, Puritan-type folks. It was made up of Scottish and Irish Presbyterians. And it was made up of French Huguenots. And these folks had gotten together so that they could meet for public worship and, and so on. They had a little congregation there, an independent congregation. And when they found out that Archibald Stobo's ship was in Charleston Harbor, they, they asked him to come ashore and to preach to them on the Lord's Day. And so Stobo uh, receives this request, and he goes ashore into Charleston to preach for them. Lo and behold, while Archibald Stobo is in Charleston, something happens that if you're from coastal Carolina, you know is a pretty frequent occurrence. A hurricane comes, an intense hurricane. And the hurricane actually destroys Archibald Stobo's boat. 
and strands him and his family and just a few other people who had come ashore on or, or in Charleston. I believe, actually, the rest of the people on the boat perished, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that. So now, Archibald Stobo and his family are stuck in Charleston. And the congregation at the Circular Church requests him to become their full-time pastor, and he does. And within a few years, he's not only become the pastor of the Circular Church, but he's covenanted together with the rest of the folks in the congregation who were convictionally Presbyterian, basically agreeing that when they have the numbers and the opportunity, they're going to start their own Presbyterian church. Not only that, he goes throughout the area around Charleston, South Carolina, planting Presbyterian churches in the ilk of the Church of Scotland. And so because of Archibald Stobo's work here, in 1728, we have the origins or the establishment of the Presbytery of Charleston, South Carolina, which is totally separate from the Presbytery of Philadelphia and would be completely separated from the rest of American Presbyterianism all the way up until about 1800 when the Presbytery joined the Synod of the Carolinas. It's a fascinating story. I have here a picture of St. John, or uh, yeah, John's Islands Church which was established in 1719 before the Presbytery itself was established. I believe this is a restored version, at least, of the original building. It's a beautiful building, rather large, actually. You can go there today. I think they keep the doors unlocked all the time, so if you go, you can, you can go inside and see it. I have a picture here of the inside of it. Uh, I couldn't find a picture without these pesky Greenville Seminary students uh, standing in the pulpit, so... Just ignore that and like impose John Knox or something there. It's, it's fine. This guy's name is Joe Gehrman. He's a good guy. If he was here, I'd pick on him. But, uh, but you can see this is a, a very traditional Reformed congregation. The building is, is just you know, really a beautiful example of Puritan or Scottish Presbyterian architecture. And the ideals, you see the, the clear windows so you can read the scripture. And, of course, you have Ali there as you would have had in these older congregations for the black members or for the slave members at that time. So that's Archibald Stobo in the, the formation of the Presbyterian Church or the Presbytery of Charleston. Another important thing to note about them before we move on is that in the Presbytery of Charleston, when they're established, they do something, at least they appear to do something, which the Presbytery of Philadelphia uh, did not do. Anybody want to... Take a shot at what that is. They subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they adopt as well, it seems, uh, the, the, book of, uh, the, the Book of Public Worship or the, the uh, Directory of Public Worship. So it's interesting, uh, and it serves a w- as a good contrast here, uh, that in the South, already at this early date, there was, there was a strong confessional tradition that was more wedded in some ways to doing things the way they did them in Scotland than there was in the North. Now, there's many reasons we might speculate for that. One reason is that the people who are down here are being influenced by Stobo, who comes straight from Scotland, whereas up North you had New Englanders who had come from Congregationalism, you had some men of Welsh background, and you had just a, a great variety of people that were influencing that. But in the South, there has always been a commitment to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which comes later in the North. It's an interesting point, I think. Skipped over. Hmm. Anyway, 
deficiencies in my slideshow here. So that's 1728. 1729, jump back up to the north, uh, this is the year uh, that the, the Synod of Philadelphia, now three presbyteries, uh, eventually adopts the Westminster Standards as their, as their doctrinal standards. So let's think about that for a moment. From 1706 to 1729, there was no confession in the northern presbyteries. That's interesting. So, I've got a question for you. Do you think that's because they didn't believe the Westminster Confession of Faith and shorter and larger catechisms were accurate summaries of, of what the Scripture teaches? No. No, they didn't. I, I, I don't think they did. There is going to be a controversy around subscribing. And in this process, it is discovered that some men in the presbytery do have scruples with the idea of subscribing to a man-made confession. And that debate happens, actually. There's, there's a big debate about it. Is it okay to subscribe to a confession that men have written? It's a fascinating thing to observe here at the very beginning of Presbyterian church history. In America, you have this, this debate. Um, it's interesting. I would note, though, some people want to make more of this than I think they should. And the reason I don't think we should make as much of it as some people have is, is because, if you think about it, where did men like Francis McAmey come from? Well, predominantly they came from, from British Reformed churches or Irish Reformed churches, where, where they had done what? Themselves. They had already subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, so that's an important thing to note, that many of the men who were there at the formation of this first presbytery, they only ordained one man at their first meeting, a man named John Boyd. Uh, but for the most part, everybody else seems to have, in some way, shape, or form, subscribed the confession beforehand. So it's not like they had qualms with the confession, although when they do adopt the confession, they do alter its teachings on the civil magistrates. Uh, so they don't adopt it exactly the same as it was adopted uh, uh, in Europe. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's an interesting discussion, and, th and there's a good deal of debate after the Adopting Act, which is that act wherein they adopt the Westminster Standards, about what does it mean to adopt the Westminster Standards. Anybody ever heard a debate about that in recent times? <laughs> I don't know if you have or not, but, it, but if you know anything about current discussions or really the entire history of American Presbyterianism, you'll know that this is a big issue. What does it mean to subscribe to the standards? The language of the Adopting Act can lead people in, in different directions. So some people read the Adopting Act as requiring only uh, what we call system subscription. In other words, subscribing to the system of doctrines contained in the scripture, or contained in the, the standards, uh, and in the scripture for that matter, in their opinion. And then some take a stricter view, which says, no, you, you don't just subscribe the system, but when the Adopting Act speaks of system, or when documents speak of the system, what they're actually speaking about is the whole comprehensive thing. And so there begins to be discussion around this, and it leads eventually to uh, the, the, the Senate of Philadelphia having to come in and clarify what they meant, from, uh, meant by adopting the Westminster Confession later, and they do adopt at that point. I believe it's in 1739, but I'd have to look at that for some reason. I didn't put it on my paper here. They do adopt a, a fairly strict understanding of what it means to adopt a confession at that point. 
But I do just, I just want to make this point that these are not new discussions. Um, and I want to introduce a concept that I think we can really trace through the rest of American Presbyterianism at this point. There has always been a debate within American Presbyterianism between two sides. One side, you have a group of people who desire the Presbyterian Church in America to be uniquely American and also broad. That takes a variety of different expressions. So obviously we can think of the PCUSA and, and liberalism in Presbyterian Church in America today, not the PCA, but the broadly speaking. And, and we can think about that's one expression of broadness. We're going to see later that you'll see even in some evangelical Presbyterian bodies, not to pick on the EPC, but the EPC itself, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, this would be another expression in a sense of a slightly more narrow, but yet still a quite broad understanding of Presbyterianism. We could see the PCA is maybe the center right of this conversation. And probably among the American Presbyterians, we could see ourselves, the OPC, at the very right edge of that. We typically, it's been the culture of our church, to see Presbyterianism in America as being defined strictly by the standards and being a rather narrow thing. That doesn't mean you have to be narrow-minded, but I think it's just, let's be honest with ourselves about where we fall on the spectrum. But these divisions, these poles, if you will, have been at play really from the very earliest days. You're constantly going to see this debate. Are we broad or are we narrow? And you're going to see debated throughout the history of the church uh, the, the pluses and minuses of both sides. So, one of the ways that this bears itself out in the very near future at this point, so we've covered the adopting yak. You can think we're in the, the 1720s, the 1730s. Uh, we see uh, debates surrounding what it means uh, to confess the Westminster Confession of Faith, but that's going to be exacerbated, and these parties are going to be drawn out again uh, to debate the topic of the Great Awakening. And so this is going to become a big time period, we could think, uh, for instance, somewhat arbitrarily, but uh, we could think, for instance, of the 1730s. We could think of the, the revival that happens in Northampton under Jonathan Edwards, if you remember that in his book that he writes about it, a surprising or a fateful narrative of surprising work of God. Uh, there begins to be a movement, uh, a religious movement, a revival that takes place both in the colonies and in places like England and Scotland and Wales. In Wales, it's going to uh, bear a nation known as the Calvinistic Methodist uh, there, who will become Presbyterians uh, in the future. Uh, in the States, it's, it's pan-denominational. Uh, so you'll see Baptist, Presbyterians... Anglicans, men like George Whitfield and people influenced by him. And, and there's going to be debate in almost every single denomination about whether or not these revivals are a good thing or if they're a bad thing. Now, we're going to have to stop in just a second. But it might be an interesting thing for you to think about just over this week before uh, we come back together to discuss uh, these topics. You know, what is your view of these revivals? On the one hand, I think our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, they're generally good things. And, I, and I'll just I'll play my cards 
I, I do think they're generally good things. But there's a lot of strange stuff that happens. So we can think about people fainting, people crying out in services, people going into fits. This stuff is happening even during the first Great Awakening. You also have issues like ministers who didn't believe other ministers in their presbytery were converted, going into the territory of their churches and and holding revival-style preachings, uh, meetings. Things like this are happening, and so, so there's... You know, there's a tendency for us to immediately say all of these things are great. And, and I do think that on the whole, there were positive things that came out of it. But we have to recognize that there were some things going on here that, that were legitimately making people uncomfortable. And eventually, this is going to come to a head in what we call the old side, new side controversy in American Presbyterianism. And the synods are going to divide between the Synod of New York, which is a second synod that forms, which is going to be New Side and the Senate of Philadelphia, which remains Old Side. And we'll pick up and discuss uh, some more of that whenever we meet again. But for the moment, I just want you to take that, ruminate on it a bit, maybe do your own looking into some of these things, and, and think about it. You know, think about what side of this debate you, you might find yourself on. It's, uh, if you're like me, you'll say, sometimes I'm old side, sometimes I'm new side. It kind of depends on what side of the bed I wake up in that morning, I think, if I'm feeling positive, you know, anyway. But uh, nonetheless, it's interesting to, to think about and ponder. Okay, well, let's stop here before we go into the personalities of the old side, new side controversy. And I'll take just a few questions, and then we've got to get out of here. Dick. Right. Will you comment on whether the degree to which the, the state church manifested itself in the middle colony? Oh, yes. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were established churches, I, I believe, in almost all the colonies. Pennsylvania may be an exception. Is that the only exception, Dick? Do you know that? Right off the top of your head? Virginia was Anglican. Yeah. Yeah, so... So there were established churches in the colonies, for sure. Uh, and actually, there were established churches in New England after the Constitution is ratified. I, I, I don't think a lot of people understand that. Uh, the early understanding of the Constitution was not opposed to, the, to having a state church on a state level. It was opposed to having a federal state church. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that definitely you see that debate happening whenever they adopt the Westminster Confession. Yeah. When you look at the Massachusetts, for example, right. and you, you read the uh, original laws and liberties of Massachusetts, there's a, just a strong line yeah. between the church right. and, and the commonwealth. Correct. Yeah, and I think it would be really interesting to think about the degree that existed within Presbyterianism. Because I, I to my knowledge, there's no discussion when they adopt the Westminster Confession of keeping the sections on the civil magistrate. Nobody pushed back on that that I know of. Matt, are you familiar with any? I don't think anybody pushed back on that. So it was almost like unanimous consent. Let's leave this section out of the confession when we adopt it. Now, there's a question about does that mean they didn't believe it or does that mean they just didn't think it was necessary or really pertinent at the moment? That question I couldn't answer. I'm not sure if anybody could. Yep. Already. Yeah. 
in Massachusetts, I think it would have early on uh, in places like that. But the degree to which that continues, you know, for instance, when they're not colonies anymore, that that I'm not I'm not sure about. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, an interesting question. Rimka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say generally when I say that, I mean it in, in relation to the Westminster Confession. So, you know, you could think about, say, the OPC, on paper at least, has a fairly strict understanding of what it means to subscribe to Westminster Standards. The PCA has something they call good faith subscription, which is... I'm not going to try to explain that. Um, if there's a PCA person who wants to explain, Ervon, you can talk to Ervon later, and he can explain to you good faith subscription. Uh, it allows men to take exceptions to the standards as long as they are registered with their presbytery, things like this. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church would be even less committed to the Westminster standards uh, to the point where you go to EPC churches and you would not really know the difference between that church and your general mainline evangelical church. The PCUSA <laughs> maybe is the extreme where they're actively, you know, assaulting the Westminster Confession. I don't know if that would be true. They have some reverence for it, but it's it's an artifact of history. It's not anything that they would appeal to currently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. And, and a question only you and Tim Hopper would have asked. So t- Tim Hopper has this wonderful little chart for us here, <laughs> which I would have not thought of putting in this, but I guess he, he knew. You know, he knew you were going to be here and you were going to ask this question. And you can come up here and look at this after the time. I'm not going to try to decode it for you, but these are the ethnic backgrounds of European immigrants into the Port of Philadelphia. So you see here, 1710, what do we got? 646 Germans... 364 Scotch or Scotch-Irish and 648 England. Yeah, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot, say. Yeah, good question. Were there six Italians? <laughs> the downgrade had already begun. You know, already. That's Okay, all right, well, we should probably, we should probably wrap it up. We've, we've gone to our time here.